that notion of scarcity is just so embedded in capitalism. It's embedded into white supremacist delusion. It's embedded into, it is the bedrock of almost all oppression is there is not enough. And I am very clear that that's a lie. I know it's a lie because Jeff Bezos made $11 million a day for the last year. And no one has said, Jeff Bezos, that's disgusting. People are dying. Folks are broke. People are struggling. And you are hoarding the resources of this nation. This is the Bold Bitch Podcast, where I dive deep into conversations around taboo topics. I'm your gay, ADHD-having, and compulsively curious host, Gia Goodrich, and among many things, I have a very low tolerance for bullshit. So each week, I have intriguing conversations with experts, tastemakers, rebels, and rule breakers who choose to boldly show up and own their opinions in this crazy call-out culture we live in. Speaking your mind and trusting your gut isn't easy, but the boldest, truest version of yourself is exactly what the world needs. Hello. Hi. How are you? I am super excited for this episode. Ooh. It, I mean... Sonia, motherfucking Renee Taylor. Like, what? Who is she? Who am I for having the audacity to interview someone as amazing as her? You are in for a treat because she is just this beacon of wonderful, rich energy and kindness and badassery, boldness seeping out of every pore. And also, like, really real, which I knew because I've seen lot of her stuff. I've read her books, but it's just so nice when you interact with somebody that you know is a big deal. That's like low-key been interviewed by Brene Brown amongst many other amazing people and just show up in such a deeply authentic, humble, yet powerful way. Like that just, mm, like that just, that's, it's the humility slash power for me. And Yeah, this episode was amazing. What's interesting, if you check out the debrief that myself and our producer, Brittany Blair Wright, do together, we talked about my reaction to this episode. And I was very much in my feelings around this after we recorded. I just was very nervous about, did I do well enough? What was she going to think about it? Was I overly excitable or was I being authentic to myself? Like just all of the like fangirl questions when you're like standing in line for an autograph and then you have a quick conversation with a celebrity and then you're still thinking about it 15 years later, energy. And thankfully, recently I re-listened to it and... Yeah, I'm just so grateful for this conversation and for this podcast and for you listening and just supporting it and giving the opportunity to have bold, rich conversations like these. You are going to love, love this episode. Oh, and really quickly before we dig into it, I'm just going to say if you're listening to this, please do me the fabulous favor, you generous human you, by heading to iTunes, leaving a rating very least a rating, and also a review would be wonderful. It helps our podcast get seen. And then also like share this episode with a friend because friends need to know about all the goodness in your life. So if you're excited about that, I will love you. I will love you regardless. I mean, let's just be real about that. Okay. Onward to the episode. 
Today's guest is a world-renowned thought leader, artist, activist, poet, and changemaker. She is the founder and radical executive officer of The Body Is Not an Apology, a digital media and education company committed to radical self-love and body empowerment as the foundational tool for social justice. Her work has empowered millions of people to reimagine a relationship with their bodies, moving away from the shaming messages we've internalized to one of radical self-love. Her New York Times best-selling book, The Body is Not an Apology, is a truly transformative map revealing how the systems of oppression that we both benefit from and simultaneously steal from us are ultimately about bodies and how we can begin to understand the interconnectedness between our body and the culture of injustice. She is a tremendous force for good and love in the world and also inspiringly clear and resolute in communicating boundaries, fuck-ups, and places where we can all do better. The fantabulous and radically bold bitch, Sonia Renee Taylor. Oh my gosh. Can you send me that? That's my new bio. I'm like, I really, I'm like, I'm not writing anything else. I just, that's my new bio for life. I'm so serious. Please send me that. Okay, will do. Um, I well, and what was crazy is it was just like, it was hard to pare it all down. Like, and just looking at how much you've done and the ways that you have impacted so many communities, is it challenging to really internalize that sometimes, just knowing that you as a person have had this tremendous impact? I don't think I think about it often. I don't think I think about it in that context. I think, yeah, like today's my work, whatever that work is. And I trust that it will get to who it's supposed to get to. I trust that today in a way that I haven't always. And so that allows me to to just trust that it's out there doing what it's supposed to do. And I don't have to be clocking it all the time because if I had to clock that, I'd lose my mind. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, I love that. And that actually brings me to one thing I, I wanted to talk to you about is I watched your What's Up, Y'all, where you were talking about originally wanting to manifest being a New York Times bestselling author and what that journey was to the place where now that's actually the truth and the and the relationship with release. Mm-hmm. I want to say that's been the story of my last year has been the most intense lessons in what does it mean to really let go of attachment right? To let go of attachment to things, to outcome, to it looking a certain way and trust that whatever form it's going to be is, is going to be, you know, the highest version of whatever it is for me. Yeah. I'm a very willful person or have been historically a very willful person. And I'm like, no, I want it and I'm going to do it and I'm going to make it happen. And life has been like, that's great. You could do that, but that's the harder way. Or you Yeah, it's like, that's cute. That's cute. cute. I see you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Or it's like, you can let life happen the way that life wants to happen to you and trust that it is in service of your highest good. And so this year, you know, sort of body slammed me and it was a WWF wrestled me into that surrender. (laughs) Why, hello. Consider this your personal invitation to the Bold Bitch Mafia. It's our private community where you get all sorts of bonuses and perks. Now, I know you're probably multitasking. You're probably either driving or running or running errands, whatever the situation is. So I want you to just embed this in your brain. Remember it. So when you can safely pull out your phone, do the following. Go to oldbitch.com slash mafia and join our free membership that gives you access to all sorts of bonuses like full video episodes, and 
our secret show, The Bold Bitch Debrief. That is where we can hang out, build community, and take over the world. It's free. All you have to do is go to boldbitch.com slash mafia. And I'll see you there. And so much about, I mean, your amazing book and your workbook, which we're definitely going to talk about, is about these strategies of reframing and figuring out how you can recode things to get to a place where your, you know, things that are traumatic can be served or can serve you in a way. So how has that for you personally in the last year really shown up? Um, yeah, (laughs) don't make me think about it. Uh, it's, you know, 2020, which I think was true for many, many people, like really just handed folks their ass. A meat grinder. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Hey, Hey, we sit down (laughs) and learn what you're here to learn or don't, but you're going to sit down. Yeah. And so, you know, I had a very intense experience. I've been talking about it a bit in some spaces, you know, 2020 was a massive spiritual awakening for me in the form of major life chaos and calamity right before COVID. So COVID hit, I was in the United States on tour doing events. And that's when sort of COVID hit. Super luckily, it didn't impact my tour at all. I think maybe one event canceled out of all of the 13 events I think I was doing. I went back, but I was supposed to be doing retreats in New Zealand which is where I was living, which is where I live now, you know, so we were getting the house ready for retreats. My partner was getting the house ready, all of these things. And then on the plane, I was like, I think I have to cancel this retreat. I feel like I should not bring people to New Zealand. And I don't know what's happening with this thing. And thank God I did, or else my participants would have been stuck in New Zealand. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because New New Zealand has been particularly aggressive and wonderful about locking it up. And you were in, you're here. Because yeah. there was a period of time where it was like, you can't leave. There's like, you can't get out of here because we're not flying people out. We're in, you know? Mm-hmm. And so right around the week, right before we went to lockdown, we're almost at, we're almost at a one year anniversary. A Tuesday, I found out that my dog of 12 years had cancer. On Wednesday, I found out that my partner was in love with someone else. <laughs> On Thursday, we ended the relationship. On Friday, the country went into a level four, complete and total lockdown. My partner moved out. And then 10 days later, my dog died. And for the next three months, I was alone in this house that was supposed to be a retreat center by myself (sighs) in the midst of what is one of the most intense and impactful sort of spiritual experiences that I've ever had in my life. And it was very clear to me that I was being given the assignment this is your retreat, honey. (laughs) This is your (laughs) healing retreat. (laughs) And here are all the things it is that you are being invited to heal from. And here's all the space that you're going to need to do it. Here's all the quiet. Here's all the alone. Here's the land that's going to hold you. And now it's your choice. Are you willing to surrender to these lessons? And, you know, I I mean, I could have said no, but why? Because now I'm a home alone in grief. (laughs) Like there was nothing else to do but say, all right, what do you want from me? You know, what what is it that I'm yeah. supposed to learn here? And that commenced a year long lesson of, of what does it mean to give up my illusions? What does it mean to choose myself? What does it mean to stop giving myself away? What does it mean to trust? And what does it mean to to surrender and not be attached to the form and trust that the outcome is in service of my highest good? Yeah. Oh, that just resonates with me so much because I feel like that invitation 
from the universe is one that, you know, on my better days, I'm like, bring it. We are here for it. We are showing up boldly. We are on track. And then other times I'm just like, cowering in the corner. Yeah. Exactly. Not today, universe. Not today. Absolutely. Uh, But I love that so much. And that's one of the things that I, well, first of all, I have to just tell you Mm -hmm. that yesterday I was on a walk with my good friends and she is potentially flirting with the idea of starting a podcast and all the kind of stuff comes up, right? That we're socially coded to question ourselves and all this kind of whatever. And so I easily fall into the like cheerleader, like, come on, let's, let's get you going, whatever. And I had just said, well, do you know who my next interview is with? And she was like, who? And I was like, Sonia Renee Taylor. And you should have seen her face. It was just like, and it was this light bulb moment for her. And we both just kind of geeked out, but it was this, like, you could tell that just even you, which this is kind of the hard thing is that it's like, I'm sure you experience, you are you, but also you operate as a symbol and as a mechanism that like liberates other people through your words and your impact and everything like that. And just that relationship, I could tell was just like mind bending to her that like she could create something that would connect her with someone who's had such an impact, who's so like bold and authentic and doing such amazing things in the world that, yeah, it was just, so I just had to tell you, cause we like totally geeked out about it. And I, you just have this kind of I don't know, like fangirls all over the world. Well, like fan folks, let's say, you know what I mean? How does that like feel in your, yeah, in your body? It's strange and it feels new. You know, I like to say that I came out of my mother's womb with jazz hands. Like I always wanted to be on stage, like, (laughs) which was very uncomfortable for her. I've always felt like my work is in the world, is, you know, out in the public. And there are many ways in which that has sort of iterated over the years. But in the last year, that has shifted to a place where, like, you know, someone sent me a post today, and my name is the answer to a crossword puzzle in the Canadian National Newspaper. (laughs) What? (laughs) I was like, Grandma, we made it. You know, like, Grandma, we made it. That's if you're a crossword puzzle answer, like, something's really going all right. And so it's a strange experience because like you said, I'm me. I'm yeah. And and there's a part of me that is like, hey, how you doing? And I and that I feel that way about everybody. And that like connection and relationship is is something I I love and always want to be in with people. And you cannot physically, energetically, um, well, you can't energetically, but Physically, I certainly cannot be in relationship with the hundreds of thousands of people who follow my work. Um, And energetically, it's actually not good for me to be in an exchange-based relationship with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. It's draining because I'm just one person and that's a lot of energy coming at me. So it's been about practicing like what are healthy boundaries? What are energetic and spiritual boundaries, right? Like, how do I not become your guru, your say, like, I'm regular, you know, I was like, you love me now, you might hate me next week. Let me be, <laughs> let me be clear, <laughs> right, that it is, you know, that, and and so it's been about staying grounded in myself and staying grounded in what's real, which is like, there is a, a philosophy by which I live my life. And that philosophy resonates with people. And consequently, I'm like, what are ways that I can share that philosophy more freely 
And it is not for me to lead anyone anywhere. It is for people to say, oh, I see my own journey for myself in that work. Now let me go take that journey. And, yeah. and giving the responsibility back to the community to do their own work and trusting that like we are in this together. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's powerful. And it's interesting to me how we as a culture, and especially thinking about it in terms of identity politics, right? That we need to look to people to, like, we look for this team of like sled dogs to drag us into wokeness. Yes. And, (laughs) and, you know, and then we don't think about like, oh, all of this labor for all of these humans. And they're all trying, this is, they all have complex identities that they're trying to negotiate in a world in systems that are not meant for them and are actively harming them. And, and I've seen a lot of your communication really standing up for others who are in that space and mm-hmm. translating for people and saying like, hey, like I'm thinking about specifically your video about Lizzo isn't your mammy, like mm-hmm. get over it. <laughs> Yeah. And I just, and I, I love that, but I think, um, I'm wondering, I guess what the response is to that. Cause I feel like people experience that as a need and then have resistance when you're like, oh no, you need yeah. to walk yourself over into enlightenment. Yeah. I find, you know, I think it's both. I think that people are like, no, really lead me. But I think the entire point of the work of radical self-love is to say what you're looking for is in you. It's not, you know, and it's actually, I used to have this joke with my friends. It's like, I'm really glad that radical self-love is what came through me because, you know, otherwise, you know, I'm a Scorpio with a stellium in Scorpio, right? Like I have five planets in Scorpio. I'm, I'm. It's it's called a stellium when you have have three or more of the same planet in a house. Wow. I'm a stellium Sagittarius. Okay. So you just. Yeah. Yeah. Fire, just 100% <laughs> just in it. <laughs> Sorry to everybody around me. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm 100% like in the depths of all the things, like deep, yeah. deep, like, no, let's go to the bottom of the ocean about all of life. And what I've gotten clear about, so what I think Joker used to have with my friends is like, you know, like if it were not for radical self love, I'd be like an, an evil sex cult leader or something, right? Like, <laughs> Like, you know, but because radical self-love is radical self-love, it always returns people to themselves, right? It Mm. returns me to myself. It's like, why? When I want to make it about you, when I want to make it about how many people see me, when I want to make it about that, it's like, no, pumpkin, radical self-love. It is about you, that what you are looking for outside is actually an internal experience, and until you really get that it's an internal experience, you're going to keep trying to fill that hole with things that are unfillable. You yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure you get this a lot, but even the idea of radical self-love is hard. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I, let's just full stop there. Yes. It's hard. Period. <laughs> Point blank. <laughs> end of story. It's hard. Drop I'm never going to pretend it's not hard. <laughs> never ever. Yeah. But the thing that I think that you do such a wonderful job in the book and in the workbook is breaking it down so that if you can find the space to engage with things, to engage with your feelings, to question, and like you say, interrogate, Mm -hmm. that there is this roadmap in how to get there. Because if you just think about, like for myself, going from here to radical self-love feels like a non-transversible, no, trans, I'm thinking 
transverse. Yes, transverse. Yeah. Non-transversible. Yes. Chasm. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Can't go back. You got it. Right, exactly. It feels like you can't do it. But in doing some of like the questions that you pose, it starts to, I think, crack us open to some of these these ways that we can start to get there. So for people who haven't yet, who are going to dig into the book, what are some of those nuggets? Yeah, so I think you're hitting on one of the key pieces, which is it's calcified, like our way of being and our relationship to our bodies right now, really calcified. It's really, this is the way I've always done it. I don't even think about it anymore. It runs on autopilot, right? It's it's our default way of being. And the work of the book is to get us to raise to consciousness that which is unconscious in us, that which mm-hmm. is just default. And so, you know, the first step is just like what you said, is like, let me, can I engage myself? Am I willing to let myself know about me, right? And am I like willing to know about me more than surface level? You know, am I willing to investigate and be curious about my own motives and machinations as curious as I am when I'm, you know, dating somebody new? (laughs) When I'm, you know, Mm -hmm. like that thing we direct to other people, can I redirect it to myself? Can I get curious about it? And can I get curious without the voice of like, I'm bad or wrong because of whatever I find there? And that's the hard part is, right, we've got this like, I'm bad or wrong because of whatever it is that comes up when I get curious about myself. And what I try to set the tone for in the book is whatever comes up, of course it did. Like, like whatever whatever comes up, of course it did, because whatever comes up is a reflection of all the input, all the input that we have been given from our society, from our cultures, from our families, from our political systems, from our educational systems. We are all of those things. And so can I see that as not of me, right? Like not of me, just in me, right? Like, oh, it's Mm -hmm. in me, but I didn't create it. I didn't make it. And so I can explore it and be like, ew, I don't like that. Let me take that out. (laughs) Ew, that's, you know, and like not, ew, like I'm bad, but ew, like, oh, I was given something. I talk about it in the book. I was given an ugly shame sweater. I don't want to keep this. I'm not wearing this. (laughs) Let me return (laughs) this and get what I want, you know? And so those are some of the the invitations is to approach that from a different kind of way. Yes. Well, and I just, I love your analogy. I mean, there's so much, like there are just moments where I listen to things. So in listening to it, I would like play it back and just think just the quality of your writing, the way that you frame things is so beautiful. But I love the analogies, like just really crystallizing it. It's like an ugly sweater that somebody gave you and you don't have to keep it. It's not yours, you know? And we think of that identifying our thoughts so much as us. And I just love the way you were like, they're mine, but they're not me. And you can, and it's not your fault because you grew up swimming, marinating in this, like just all the isms Mm -hmm. sauce. And Mm -hmm. you just have to see it and then do the work and not continually identify exactly. with it. Just know that there's something else. Yeah. 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 But you talk a lot about what is work and what is not work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you, yeah. How do you break those two apart for yeah. people who are really wanting to. Right. I want to do the work. Work in. Right. <laughs> yeah. I want to do the work. I've read 30 books. <laughs> I have them strategically placed on my shelf for my Zoom meeting so you can when see. We zoom, right? When we zoom, yeah. all the books I've read. Um, but nothing else in my life looks different. Right. right. And that's and that's the that's the question about the work, right? Because work 
has an outcome. Work has a product, right? Great work doesn't just sit, if, if it just sits in you, that's just an acquisition of information, mm-hmm. right? And we can all acquire information, but it's what we do with the information that constitutes work. And I actually have been, you know, I'm in this interesting phase of my life right now in the last month or two, where all of a sudden I'm just like, hmm. I don't like the language. I don't like any of the things we've been saying. And I want new words for everything. And so even for me, I was like, this as work resituates me inside of a system of capitalism. I don't want to be in that system. That system needs to go. And I'm like, so what does it look like? This is life. This is how I live, right? It's like, this isn't what I do. It's how I live. And because Mm -hmm. it's how I live, it exists in every area that I exist in. It exists in my thoughts about how I source my food. And I'm imperfect about it. You know, but I think about it today in a way that I never thought about it in the past because I actually do care. It's in the way in which I try to engage with people. It's in the way in which I try to be in relationship. All of that is inside of this mechanism of living that I want to be doing. And so for folks who are like, I want to do the work, I'm like, how about can we do the life? What would it look like if this if this became your life? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And like, because p- the other thing, particularly in our spaces where we hold privilege, privilege makes you think you're the expert. And so then privilege makes you feel like you should go and educate all the people because you're the expert. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's actually really dangerous for people who hold positional power and domination in certain areas of their lives to then go on to say, this is the work. I do the work. Now this is my work right? Mm -hmm. Because my work is like now, oh, my work is to be an educator. But if it's your life, then you're less concerned about, is this how I earn money? Is this how I'm visible? Is this how I'm seen? And it is, is this how I show up with my friends and family? Is this the conversation I have with my babies? Is this the conversation I'm having with my friends? Is this the thing I invite when I gather around at my dinner table? That's what I'm interested in people doing, because when we do that, we actually change not just some some external, like only when I'm seen in public, but I still haven't done this work. Right. Mm Because we all go to work and do things that is not how we live in when we get home. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And what I would rather have is people to be doing what is how they live. And when you live that way, that means it's like, no, I think about who's in my office and who's not and why and why they're not there and why we haven't done anything to get them there, right? right? I think about where do I hold power and am I willing to give up some of that power for the justice and equity I say I want to bring about in the world? It makes us have a different question, a different way of operating and orienting towards that question. So I'm actually done with people doing the work and I want you to do the living. Do, let's do life. Let's, let's live it. Life. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I love that so much. Well, this leads very easily into the stickiness of the conversation where we're talking about social media platforms and influencers where very much the metrics, what their audience wants to see is them presenting things. And at the same time, there is this taking up space positioning yourself as the expert of a conversation that you should be centering somebody else's voice who's in that position that's really dealing with that. So can you unpack some of that? Because I know that there's been like 
a lot of conversations around like Blair Amani, who I totally love, but like doing a post on colorism and what, you know, and just things like that where, you know, people are totally doing their best, but not really realizing how them centering themselves in the conversation is actually a part of the erasure situation. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I talked about, I did a video about about this sort of dynamic of, of like what I like to call sort of the cheat sheet of how to understand ourselves and the in our positionality and power inside of these larger systems. And, you know, I often have used the analogy of the ladder, the ladder of bodily oppression, which is the way that I talk about it inside of the book. And the ladder of bodily oppression is the ladder that we all exist on of hierarchy that says some bodies are better than other bodies. And that that is you know, categorized by any myriad of ways. It is categorized by race. It is categorized by color and skin tone. It is categorized by hair texture and Mm -hmm. noses. It's categorized by money. It's categorized by ability or disability, by gender and sexual orientation, size, all of them, right? And we all know when we allow ourselves to be conscious, what what the world says is better than other things. We know which bodies are higher up and which bodies are lower. Right. Because it's so eternalized. We're it's just internalized it. and it's in the world, right? Like we yeah. see it on the news. We see it on television shows. We see, we know, right? We're not oblivious to this. We all know this is what we say is a good body. And these are bodies that we know are lesser bodies. We know that mm-hmm. because of the ways in which oppression impacts those bodies, right? And so then I ask people to situate yourself on the ladder. Right. Which is uncomfortable. Mm. Again, it's one of those things we don't want to think about. Right. We just want to be on the ladder and never think about where we at on the ladder. Situate yourself on the ladder. Where am I in the body that I have and the identities that I have? Where am I on this ladder? Right. Who's above me? Okay, all these people, there's a lot of white men above me. (laughs) There's white women above me. There's thin folks above me. There's, you know, there's all kinds of things above me. Who's below me? Who's below me? In the conversation that I'm having right now, are there people below me? And if there are people below me, they're the person who's supposed to be talking, not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what do I need to do to bring them into the conversation? Because right now I am taking up space and not creating the space for the people below me to actually have the space to talk about their experience. You know? So when I think we have in conversations about, you know undocumented in immigration, right? There are people below me who are living a totally different experience as a result of their immigration experience. I don't need to be on TV talking about immigration. (laughs) I need to direct you, producer who called me because I have a platform, to a person who is undocumented. Right. I need to direct, like, and I need to be willing to give up the opportunity to be on TV and be seen in my shininess so that I can actually create the space for someone who has the lived experience of this particular axis of oppression to be able to talk about what it is, what it is to have to live life in their bodies. Mm-hmm. That's the work. The and life. that is so fucking hard. <laughs> like I was thinking, um, I watched this amazing show before me too kind of crushed it because the, not the show, but like the lead actor transparent is the show and the lead actor totally like transphobic vibes 
issues on set. Like, and it just, it's hard to separate that from the thing. But Mm -hmm. one of the actresses who's amazing trans actress, who's white, you know, had said in a round table, it's, it's really tough because now I've spent so much of my career not getting roles because I'm trans. And now I am not supposed to take whatever roles there are because I'm white. And you could tell that like she was really having the struggle because she's situated on a place in the ladder where she's still being held back from a lot of these opportunities. And yet there are people who are lower than her on the ladder and, and trying to sort all of that out. And I think her argument that she was talking about is that, you know, you have shows like Pose, you have opportunities where it's all now trans people of color. And so she felt like she was getting lost in the mix, which empathetically 100% resonate with that. And yet I think there's also this other side that you're talking about with how do you figure all of that out in terms of the latter? So here's what immediately comes up for me. And this is the part, this is where I tie in the conversation that we started off with my whole big spiritual awakening. Yeah. And, And where I am today is what I hear inside of that is scarcity. What I hear Mm. inside of that is there is not enough. Yeah. And I would offer that the notion that there is not enough is born on the ladder. It only comes from the ladder, right? It only comes from being indoctrinated into systems that say you are not enough. There will not be enough. And so deal with it. Mm -hmm. And this is the part where I know that I am, you know, that I am trying a thing that I know is scary for a lot of people. And it was scary for me. But it is literally the practice of what if what is for me cannot be taken from me. <laughs> and again, it's a practice, right? It's yes. like it's a, it is a place to position yourself so that when that when that story comes up, what about me, right? I, I, like I waited years for trans roles to be available, and now I'm being told that because I'm white, no. And and what does it mean? Right. Like that's that notion of scarcity is just so embedded in capitalism. It's embedded into white supremacist delusion. It's embedded into it is the bedrock of almost all oppression is there is not. And I am very clear that that's a lie. I know it's a lie because Jeff Bezos made eleven billion dollars, eleven million dollars a day for the last year. And no one has said Jeff Bezos, that's disgusting. People are dying. Folks are broke. People are struggling. And you are hoarding the resources of this nation. Right. Mm -hmm. No one said that, but I know it to be true. Right. And so the issue isn't that it's not enough. The issue is that we have an imbalance in who we give what to. And so part of my assignment is to trust, is a practice of trust that what is mine is mine and can't nobody take it. That's because if I were to not believe that as a fat, black, queer, neurodivergent, cisgendered woman, I wouldn't have shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I, if yeah. I believed, right, if I believed that that I was at the whim of these systems, right? And that doesn't mean I'm not impacted by the systems. That doesn't mean these systems don't play in my life. Of course they do. They make my life much more difficult, but they can't take nothing from me. And I live that way. And when I live that way, all of a sudden, things that seemed closed move out of the way and openings that are for me appear for me. And so Mm. some of, so this is this delicate balance between systems and structures and our own internal knowing of divesting from the system and structure, 
right? Part of that divestment work is to say scarcity is a lie. I can both create space for the people on the rung below me and trust and trust that what is for me is for me. Because when I do that, I actually pull one of the rungs out of the ladder. And every time we pull a rung out of the ladder, we contribute to dismantling the ladder itself. Ah, uh, that is so powerful. Like I like literally feel it in my solar plexus, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is asking to really dismantle everything. 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 And we've been like, we like whack-a-mole, right? Like we're like, (laughs) I will do this one right now. Okay, we'll do this one right now. And it's like, no, what if we did them all? You know, what what if we what if we were clear that they're all connected? Right, that they are all part of the same, same gear, right? Churning us all the time, and when we are like, we're not doing none of them, (laughs) and right now we're in this amazing opportunity where it's also visible, you know, it's also visible, like this heinous, you know, massacre that happened the other day, you know, that involved the death of six Asian women and you know, and and a white man and a white woman, I believe, and. But what we can see is like, oh, the system that deems some of us invaluable will deem us all invaluable one day. The system that deems some of us disposable will deem us all disposable at some point. And mm-hmm. so how about we deal with that system? How about we, you know, if we take care of the root, we don't have to keep trying to pluck the fruit off the tree it will wither away by itself because we actually starve the root system. That's what I'm doing. Uh, I love that because I, it makes me think of actually, and I'm sure there's a term for it that I'm totally spacing out about, but how whiteness has been expanding Mm -hmm. and that the folks that end up policing it the most are the ones that just yesterday weren't a part of whiteness. Exactly. You know, like I was watching, I was watching this new show, Women Who Kill, Um, And I just got, yeah, with Lucy Lou and yeah, I just, I just, anything she's in, I'm like, I'm about it. But they were just, you know, these cis white 1960s couple Mm -hmm. that meet the neighbors. And it was just this sort of like, they're Italian. And because that wasn't my generation, like I forget just that like, oh my gosh, like they were totally treated Yeah, Italians were not always white. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Irish people weren't white. Like what? Yeah, and it's just, it's, but it's, I think exactly to your point that it's a type of scarcity mindset where it's like, we've been out of the club for so long that like, let's make sure this club is locked in so that we can at least stay here instead of just saying like, I don't want to be in your shitty club. Like, let me go do this other, do this dance out here with um, what immediately came to mind is like, have you ever done those dance parties where you just have headphones, the silent discos? Silent discos bring me so much joy. I love Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh yeah. I was actually, um, as part of like digging into this and asking the questions from some of the prompts and thinking about joy from your workbook. And I was really thinking like, what are some of the things that bring me joy? Because there are so many things that I just kind of get lost about. And I was thinking being around individuals, like that moment when you lose all abandon and you are just moving. And it's just this, like I, that for me, but then also being around 
people. Yeah. And I've never understood people who judge the way other people dance. Because for me, it's like, as long as you are committed, I am just so fucking down with whatever yeah. kind of moves, whether you're on rhythm or not. Because it's just, it's just so much joy and yeah. like just this pure manifestation of it. That's so amazing. It's good stuff. I love it. Yeah. I love it when we just give ourselves permission, you know, permission yeah. to, to be in the fullness of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So another sticky conversation I wanted to ask you more about is um, this idea of white fragility Yes. that I saw you talk about in your what's up y'all and, and everything like that. And I think that like for me personally, I wasn't really aware of Robin D'Angelo and her work for, you know, eons and eons and eons. And when she popped up on my radar, I was like, this is an amazing tool because so much of my world feels like I'm translating to white people. So like, here is something that's palatable, that makes sense. Let's translate the story, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you and other amazing individuals are providing this other perspective yeah. Yeah. as to how it's it's maybe suboptimal. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, this conversation sort of came to me through a conversation um, that Austin Channing and Rachel Ricketts had on Instagram, um, both of them brilliant Black women authors who write about race and write about racial justice. And, you know, apparently D'Angela has a new book coming out and it sparked a conversation about one, what does it mean for white people to continue to profit off of educating, <laughs> you know, right. or, you know, ra- uh, anti-racism work. And then it started to sort of be this conversation about like, no, what, what are we talking about fragility? I went to my own process of reflection, one, because I, I mentioned D'Angelo in my second edition um, as a resource, as a, as a framework. And, but when I sat with it, it was like, they said that. And then all of a sudden it, it just dropped for me. It made sense. I was like, oh, we let this white woman give new language for an experience that we've already languaged as violence. Like (laughs) this is violent, but we let a white woman relanguage it in a way that was comfortable for white people to begin to explore it. And the problem with that is that it reaffirms what it is we're trying to get out of, which is that white people get to decide what this experience is for us and that their experience gets to be centered in it and that their experience gets to be centered in a way that is most palatable and comfortable for them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, oh, no, it's not violence. It's fragility. And then that orients for me, the big deal about that is language gives us a direction. Language tells us how to move with something. Right. And so how do I move with fragility? It's real different than how I move with with violence. Right. right. And if I am navigating my own violence, I'm going to be far less urgent if I think it's just fragile than if I think it's violent. And yeah. so. Someone said to me, right, like we don't call a grenade fragile, right? <laughs> we call it dangerous, yeah. <laughs> right? And we might, you know, we might be intentional about how we navigate it, but but we're hasty, right? Like we are, <laughs> we're expeditious, right? right. Like we're, we're intentional, but we're expeditious. <laughs> Less because we can't have it just sitting around getting ready to go off. Right. That's the way that I like to think about what we call white fragility is actually white violence in the tools and strategies of white violence, right? And so the tools and strategies of white violence are defensiveness, are derailing, are, but all of it is not because this is the thing that I also think is 
the wrong premise in white fragility is that it is just because white people don't have any experience having to deal with race. And I'm like, again, that's a really nice way for white people to think about it. And what I would offer is that no, white people have practice in controlling the experience of race. And when that starts to feel like it is out of their control, they have both a series of conscious and subconscious tools, weapons that they use to maintain control. Right. But it doesn't feel as nice to say, no, you control the narrative of race. And when you stop controlling the narrative of race, you respond in violence. That Mm -hmm. is actually what it is. Yeah. But we don't want to talk about it that way because it makes white people uncomfortable. And so, again, it's an opportunity to say what happens if we stop centering the people who cause the harm. Right. And start centering the experience of the person who was harmed. What do we call it? Right. Like, what do we call it? And then how do we move with what we call it? And they know you call it what I call it because I'm the person who is having to live with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I that's such a powerful reframe. So for my backstory, I'm multiracial, right? But most of the time I grew up around my white family. Mm-hmm. So I'm very well versed in whitedom. <laughs> and for me, a lot of the ways that I used to show up were about, and again, this was like to compensate for my not enoughness, all of this kind of where do I fit was, okay, well, I can be a translator. I can be the person that makes it palatable, makes it nice, the model minority, like all of this kind of stuff. And even so much so that like I was talking to my mom the other day and we were kind of going back through my upbringing and moments of racism and microaggressions that I didn't even see right? It's taken a whole bunch of recoding because I just internalized it as I'm too loud, I'm too this, whatever. I think that that reframing of it and decentering the palatability <laughs> for white folks is, is really powerful and also really scary. I mean, to me, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's scary because there are, you know, there are risks And I've been having this conversation about a lot of things, right? Like whiteness doesn't respond very nicely when you challenge its power, you know, it, it, it responds murderously. We know we saw, we saw January 6th on the television, you know, stormed the Capitol. We, we know what whiteness does when whiteness is challenged in its positionality and power. And so that's on an individual level and on a systemic level, we, the blowback is uncomfortable and the blowback is super painful inside of the dynamics of, of relationship and intimacy, right? Mm-hmm. It can be incredibly dangerous, you know, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And so the idea that like, we would not orient ourselves to make, to make white people comfortable is, you know, is a very unnerving process. And it's been unnerving, you know, like this mm-hmm. is, how, you know, people of color and Black folks navigated Jim Crow. I talk about if we don't undo this, the central wiring, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. that created the outcome, it will just change form. And so what we're no, what I see in this is a new form of the ways in which the code of conduct was in Jim Crow, which was still about what is the conditions that, what is the conditions that whiteness is willing to, to have this conversation in? Right. Right. Like we're willing to have it with you at the back of the bus. 
right? That's, mm-hmm. that's what we're willing to have this conversation. Or we're not willing to have it with you in our schools. And now it's like, we're not willing to have it where you pick the language. We're willing to have it if we pick the language, right? And mm-hmm. we're like, okay, well, what do we do that's most comfortable for whiteness? And I think we're in this period of time where we have to challenge that, where we have to say, absolutely not. You know, this, again, I'm going to talk about this massacre where it was like, this isn't racially motivated. He was having a bad day, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, whiteness gets to decide whether or not it was racially motivated, even though we're looking at six dead Asian women and a massive uptick in Asian hate crimes, but white people right. get to tell us whether or not that was racism. Mm-hmm. Y'all get out of here. Like, <laughs> get out of here, right? <laughs> like, come on. It is sneaky and it will reposition its power. You know, as, as a system, it will reposition its power to maintain control control of the, it's like, oh, the conversation is changing. Cool. We'll determine the language of the conversation. We'll determine what things are called and defined as we decide who's white. We decide, we decide. And it's always going to be scary when we say, no, I get to decide, but we do get to decide. Mm-hmm. Well, and I just keep thinking around, around this idea of the ladder. I watched a video of yours where you were talking about the Meghan Markle the way that I was thinking of it were like these three different responses that we're seeing, right? Which is one, I had no idea that it that there would be any racism that would happen. Another is that, well, there wasn't any racism that happened. This is being conflated or whatever. Or the people who are like, duh, bitch. Duh. <laughs> like, yeah. Hello. Yeah. This is like obvious. And what you had put to me, and this is what I really appreciate is that this work is hard, right? And you're feeling it in your body and you're constantly confronted with all of the isms that you've internalized and everything like that. And what you had said is that the fact that there was kind of this shock around it mm-hmm. really speaks to her proximity to whiteness and the privilege that she was experiencing. And I, that felt very visceral to me because mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, I negotiated a lot of my life actively avoiding the conversation of race, A, because I could, probably most notably because I could. Mm-hmm. And then it's taken a lot of unwinding to really think about the harm that I've caused by participating in that ladder that is foundationally based on anti-Blackness. And what does that mean? Yeah, it makes me want to cry because, you know, and I know so much and we're going to talk about not not shaming, (laughs) like moving away from shame (laughs) because my response is, you know, like is to totally just like shame shower myself about all the things go over. Right, Right, exactly. And it's the invitation into the beginning of the conversation, which is, how can I be in this? Like, of course, like, of course, right? Right. Like, of course I'm, a, I'm, you know, the brownest girl in the entirety of my family, you know, in order to fit in, I need to not be the brownest girl in the entirety of my family. I need to figure out how I move closer to connection. Right. Like, and mm-hmm. so we have a project inside of the body is not an apology called the ruckus project which is a 30-day transformational healing project. And one of the pieces of the Ruckus Project is about how do I honor those things that were born of trauma that were there to to help me survive? They were there to keep me alive. They were there Mm -hmm. to make me not feel abandoned and alone and completely out in the world. They were there because the attempt was to create connection. And there's no shame in wanting connection. And I can be mad as hell at a system that demands I erase myself for connection. 
And so that's why I can like hold compassion for all the things that I did that were about trying to have what humans need to thrive. And then I can be enraged and down to fight until it's gone, a system that would demand that I be less of myself in order to get what it is is, that is my human birthright, you know? Mm -hmm. And you talk about this a lot where it's this, you can have compassion and accountability in the same space. And like me, you know, a person, but I'll talk about myself specifically because I'm the expert at me. that I can hold also myself accountable, like without ideally, without getting into a shame spiral, just like honor and have compassion for who I was and how I was showing up and understand like those behaviors were harmful. They were participating in a system that was actively causing harm. And yeah, can you talk more about that space of compassion and accountability? Because I think it's just, yeah, it's really powerful. So for me, it is a matter of when I hold myself in compassion, Right. I always tell me, but you can't shame me for nothing. I'm not shamed of. Right. Like you can't, <laughs> you can't shame me for nothing. I'm not shamed of. And so, first of all, and I offer this just throughout the book and it really, I offer it in the whole world. It's like, if you start with, of course, I'm harmful. <laughs> of course, I've caused, if you just start from, yeah. of course, I've caused harm. Right. Then it's a, it is a lot less of a splash in the face when you've caused harm, <laughs> right? Is you don't feel like you just got sucker punched out of nowhere. But the problem is that we're walking around here in this binary of victim or perpetrator. I am right. either innocent or I'm bad, right? Or I'm the evildoer. And that dichotomy keeps us from allowing ourselves to hold both compassion and accountability. Because if I'm both, then I can always hold compassion for the victim, for the things that got created that I didn't have any choice in that impacted the way that I moved through the world. And I can always hold in accountability the perpetrator in me, the me that did things that created harm. And I can recognize that they are not two different beings. They are both me. So I can love me and I can clean up my shit, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like that's the invitation. I can love me and I can clean up my shit. And that's the the work of radical self-love is to say, where can I love me more? Because the more I love me, the more willing I am to clean up my shit. If Mm -hmm. I think I'm worthless, then I don't want to look at my shit because it's just going to reaffirm the thing I already know, right? Yeah. But if I actually am grounded in some sense of I am an inherently loving, lovable, divine, and enough human being. And as a result of this system and, and human humanness, I am going to get it wrong. I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to put my foot in my mouth. I'm going to hurt someone. Let me clean up as I go. Let me not stick that in a closet. So then it's so big that I never want to look at it because it's now 70 years of, you know, I had a friend yesterday at dinner here who was sharing about a friend of his who had two children who he's estranged from. He's older in his Mm. 70s two children he's estranged from. And the estrangement happened because the separation from the wife happened. And he was so heartbroken about only getting to see his children then or then that his internal mechanism was like, I'm in so much pain with this like limited visitation that it's easier for me to just shut cut them out of, to just cut them out of my life yeah. and, so, and drink, right? Like to cut them out of my life and become an alcoholic. So that's the decision he made. And so then 50 years later, they're at a funeral and, you know, they're in, and, you know, he's 
my friend's like, go talk to your kids. And he's like, they don't want to talk to me. And so basically his shame over 50 years is just reaffirming the disconnection that got created back then. Right. And it's like, if you would have dealt with the pain, then you wouldn't be dragging it around for 70 years. If you can be accountable in real time, when you're accountable in real time, you don't have to be accountable all the time. Like it doesn't, it's not as laborious. It's not as frightening. It's not as filled with so much painful backstory. Like mm-hmm. harm is like compounded interest. Like it grows more every single day, right? And so like, don't park our life accounts in an account of harm with compounded interest by not fucking dealing with it. Pay the bill, <laughs> pay the bill <laughs> <it> was due. <laughs> Oh my gosh. It makes me think of like um, California uh, tolls. When you go through the toll, if you don't pay, they add $7 every day, but they add $7 to the, you know, or it's like they, it's 2% or something, but it's 2% to the penalty fee. So it's 2% on top, like the 2% grows because you now have the penalty. And so then they charge the 2% on the new penalty. It's not just on the original debt. Right. And so uh, I looked up and I had $1,200 worth of tolls. This is my old life. Yeah. <laughs> and I was devastated and I was, you know, and heartbroken and it's a hustle and capitalism. But the point was, had I just paid the $7? <laughs> right. Oh, that's, that, that's a painful lesson. Right. Yeah. Just pay $7. Love yourself and pay your $7 and you'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, which is like for me and my ADHD, that is the mission of my life is to try to do it now whilst also navigating the, if I do do it now, halfway through the trying to do it, I will get distracted and forget what it is that I am trying to do. (laughs) And that's what we need systems and backup people. And that's why this work is not alone work. This work is work in community. If you're trying to do this alone, if you're trying to like, I'm going to do my radical self-love journey all by myself. I'm going to be accountable all by myself. I'm going to, you know, do whatever it is that we say we're going to do. If we're trying to do it all by ourselves, we're still inside the ladder. We're still inside a system of individualism that wants to keep us isolated so that we don't do the work. Get in community, find you a support team. Find somebody who's going to take the notes to make sure you remember the thing you forgot you was doing halfway through doing it. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I mean, they know about this because they hear me talk about it all the time that I'm very fortunate to have a former partner slash current platonic life mate who is graciously the, the, yes, she's like the doer of my laundry and the supporter and holder of my dreams and my cuddle buddy. And we just like, I feel so grateful because after three years of us being together and now a year and a half of us having broken up and realizing that that particular iteration of our relationship didn't work. Yeah. Yeah we found something that's like so amazing. And I'm so grateful for, because we're able to like show up and support each other in this really beautiful way. And we've gotten to a place where she doesn't, I mean, sometimes she flicks me shit because I deserve it, but (laughs) she, uh, she understands that like my neurodivergent shows up in these ways that are sometimes totally outside of the realm of what we would expect for somebody who's 37 years old to be showing up. But because she knows me and loves me, she just is, is accepting mm-hmm. and like, okay, this is, you know, 
I will do your laundry. I love you. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I love that you found a platonic life partner in the perfect, in the form that fits you both. Yes. She's amazing. So I just want to let you know, I am so grateful that your team sent me an advanced copy of this workbook that I printed and bound and like dug into. Yeah. I'm jealous of everyone who actually has a copy of that workbook. I have not touched the physical copy of that workbook yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your workbook is amazing. One of the things that I think is so powerful about it is that you are giving these entry points to rework, investigate what's going on according to these four pillars that can really help us redefine things. So can you break out what those four pillars are and and even just like why you thought the workbook is like a need? Because it is a need, but yeah. I imagine it was a lot of work. Yeah. You know, I was writing that workbook during the uh, spiritual breakdown. So the spiritual mm. awakening breakdown. So it was definitely a lot. <laughs> um, so the four pillars, and I'm, you know, I have to always go back and remember these. I'm like, what were these four pillars? They are taking out the toxic, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mind matters. Unapologetic action. Unapologetic action and um, com- collective compassion. Collective compassion. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and you know, so for me, one of the things that I try to do, um, my brain works in terms of like, what's the structure or container to hold a set of ideas, you know, so the 10 tools to radical self-love existed before the pillars did. Mm -hmm. What I saw was like, I was like, okay, so there are these 10 tools, but I think, I think it's helpful for us to understand what, what these 10 tools are working on because they're each working on something different that in their collective hold the foundation, hold up the building, the structure of radical self-love. Right. And so the first for me was like taking out the toxic is like, first we've got to, again, get comfortable, get acquainted with, get intimate with the messages that we are living and swimming in already. Like what are we already doing that contributes to um, our shame, our disconnection, our story of not enoughness. What things are we already imbibing? What things is already are pumping in our ears? Mm-hmm. We need to raise that to consciousness and then we need to begin to excavate it. How do I put some space between me and that messaging? And then once we have some space between us and this messaging, and this falls also, you know, in the book, I talk about thinking, doing, being, and I, and it's a really easy structure. It's like, first we got to deal with our thoughts, then we deal with our actions and the repetition of dealing with our thoughts and our actions creates a new way of being. That's all these four pillars are is first part, we're going to deal with these thoughts. What (laughs) what are the thoughts being pumped in our brains that are and not helping us on this journey? Now we've, we have taken those out. We've made space. What do we put in the space? Because if you don't put anything in the space, the old thing will come back. The old thing is right outside the door waiting for you. It's right on the TV. It's right on the radio station. It's right when you log into Facebook or social media or whatever it is. It's waiting for you. And so if you don't have anything to counter it, it will come back and it will go back to its default setting of this is what I am inside of you. Yeah. And so mind matters is what are the actual shifts in perspective what are the tools of holding space, clearing space? I had a moment today where I was like, I'm in some like anxiety chatter in my brain. And I was like, oh, I have not meditated in days. And I know that meditation is a way in which 
I clear that anxiety chatter inside of my brain. When I'm in my headspace, it's like, no, go, honey, go sit down and focus on your breath. <laughs> and then when I complete that, I'm like, oh, right, there's some spaciousness again. So Mind Matters helps us orient to what do I put in now that I've taken out something. And then unapologetic action is the doing piece. All right, we, we, have, we have done the thinking parts. What is there to do? I can... I can do something to reconnect to my body in a loving way on a daily basis. I can, um, I can do something to like take that old story that I've been stuck in and reframe it in a different way. So that when, you know, when I find myself being pulled to that old story, I have a new story to turn to, you know, I can actively practice, you know, shifting the ways it is that I show up in relationship to my own body. I can, I can start to like, be like, Oh, I'm having that thought. Let me, what do I want to replace that thought with? And now how does that direct my action in a different direction? Mm-hmm. And then, or even what I loved is like, sometimes it's the same action, but depending on your, your relationship to it, how are you? Cause like, for me, I have lots of body shame trauma from growing up in dance, like just like so much of it. And so for me, movement was always coded as something that you have the right to do if your body looks this way, or if your body doesn't look that way, you need to leverage in order to make your body move Mm -hmm. and look this way. Yeah, And I think that recoding that is so powerful. Yeah. And I talk a lot about the difference, but it, like, it's rarely about what we do and almost always about the why we do it. And if mm-hmm. we get our why together, it will align the what we're doing. And sometimes what we're doing will be the same, but it will come from a different place, which gives us a different experience inside of it. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think you're 1 billion percent right about that. So that's unapologetic action. And then the last piece is collective compassion, which is none of this is sustainable. None of this is sustainable. If it becomes another chore we have to do by ourselves, if it becomes another reason we get to beat ourselves up because we didn't get it right, if it becomes another reason to be inside of our shame. And community and and compassion for ourselves is how we make this a living, right? Because work is duty. Right. And usually a duty we do by ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or a duty we do with people we don't like that much. Right. But we got to do it because that's how we pay the bills. Right. There are lots of ways in which work shows up. But in collective compassion, I'm in the practice of living in alignment to this experience of radical self love and doing that in the collective with other people who are going to help me build in me and build in the world the one we say we want to have. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, okay. So one of the exercises I did, I wanted to share with you because it was super powerful. It was creating your own mantra. And, and so, so you just, you know, you have to get the workbook, but one of the things that was amazing on this journey to creating my own mantra was talking about the places in which I'm having this thinking of, I used to be amazing when, if I could only get back to this, that I, I would be feel so much better and so much happier if I could, blah, blah, blah. And really acknowledging a lot of that. And then through this work, it's like figuring out, okay, well, what is the opposite of that? Like you said, like, what is that that's filling the space? Um, so you ready? This feels yeah, like super, super <laughs> awkward and vulnerable. I love it, I love it, I love it. Um, okay, so the mantra I ended up with right now, which might be reworked or whatever, is that 
My body is mesmerizing, radiant, and deeply loved. We are resolute allies in all things. With every breath, I remember my success is a direct reflection of my innate and abounding power. And by living as the boldest, truest version of myself, I am effortlessly brought into alignment with source and everything I desire and value. That's a creed. That's not a mantra. That's a, a, a I have an overachiever complex. <laughs> I love it. It's like the scroll that you pull out. Yeah, let me just unroll it. And declare. (laughs) I mean, there are so many tools and exercises in here, but why that one resonated with me so much is because even just reading it, there's a somatic response. I think we forget that these thoughts that we have that are just running in the background are creating these same responses are, you know, having this connection with our body that's operating below our awareness and this, like you said, dismantling, interrogating, and then rebuilding something intentionally that is giving you that type of feeling of broadening your shoulders and stepping into your power, I think is just to me, and this is not to disparage anyone, of course, because I think There are so many people in the self-development space that are doing amazing work. But I think that the issue that, and as a big consumer of that, let's say, the the issue that I've always found is that my brain is really powerful and really wanting to stay where it wants to stay. So you can give me all the mantra sticky notes, you know, the all the cognitive reappraisals, whatever, and my brain will find its groove back to X, Y, and Z. What's so powerful and what feels very different about this is A, the asking questions, because that's like cracking things open and your brain has this like innate response to any question you ask it. So it's making the invisible visible. But then instead of just slapping a mantra on it that my brain is going to call bullshit, it's really crafting something that as I was writing it, I was checking in with myself and asking myself how these words feel. So to get to a place where it does feel like, yeah, like I'm a bold bitch. Like I feel, you know, (laughs) so I just, yeah, I I feel like it's just powerful. Thank you. And I think again, goes back. I love the, I'm loving the weaving of this conversation and how it sort of comes back to itself is it's radical self-love. It's not for me. I'm not, I didn't write it to give it to you, to give you the answers. You know, mm-hmm. I wrote it so that you could give yourself the answers, right? Like right. your answers generated from you and yeah. what you create is what stick. What I create won't stick. And that's why I'm like, don't look to me. I can't be your guru. Cause you're going to be mad when you turn back to whatever it was. You're like, Sonia, Sonia yeah. did Mm-mm. it's yours. Yeah. And you, you source it for yourself. That's what sticks. That's what maintains itself. Well, Anne is somebody that like my trauma response is fawning, right? So I was like the straight A student. I didn't want to disappoint anybody. My whole easy groove to slip into is like, well, just give me the right thing to say. Like, what's <laughs> what's the right answer here? <laughs> and I think, yeah, that redirecting is uh, super amazing. But also like when I've been engaging with it, makes it meaty enough that like I couldn't go through it all at once. Like it's going to be something that I'm going to keep coming back to because it is asking me to feel the yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we love these feelings. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing I did want to ask you, kind of going back to this idea of trusting yourself 
your innate understanding, and this is part of my definition of boldness, is having the audacity to listen to that sense of inner knowing amidst a world that might be telling you X, Y, and Z. Uh And yet what I hear in a lot of these conversations about social justice, about how to show up in the world in the best way, is that on the one hand, you need to trust your inner knowing And then on the other hand, you have to say, well, I can't trust myself in my inner knowing because that's steeped in all of these fucked up systems. So how does one reconcile, balance, create space for, navigate that, what I'm sure is a false dichotomy, but those two phenomena? I think we have to make the distinction between what's our inner knowing and what's our like mind indoctrination. And those are not the Mm -hmm. same things, right? What my brain tells me, what my mind says is the answer um, is usually filtered through all those things that filter our systems, right? And so it's all of the society and my cultural programming and my familial programming. That's my mind. And part of, again, why we do this radical self-love work is so that I can put some space between that chatter and my internal truth. And so the first assignment is right. If you haven't done any work to put some space between that chatter and your internal truth, they're going to be on this one is louder <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's going to be the thing. So don't listen to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you can use some of these practices. You can use the practice of meditation. You can use the practice of taking out the toxic and you can use the practice of reframe your framework as ways to put some space between you in that internal theme. So Is that, that your auntie? Yeah, I know. My auntie was just, that's held her up. We supposed to go. Oh my breakfast. gosh. <laughs> well, tell her I said hi. hi. <laughs> oh, life goes on. Goes you, I on. mean, you're a big deal, and yet life goes on. Life is happening. <laughs> um, so yeah, once we have practiced putting some distance between that inner chatter and our internal selves then we can start to actually say, all right, well, what is my guidance telling me right now? The problem is people try to tell you that without having done anything to put any space between that external chatter and your inner voice. And then you can't tell the difference. You can't right. tell the They sound like one and the same. Yes. And see, and that totally makes sense to me that we think our visceral reactions to things, we think the somatic experience of hearing something that feels like a gut punch is a part of an internal knowing, but it might also be a part of this chatter that we have just been steeped in that isn't necessarily... Well, and I love the way you talk about it when you talk about calling in, calling out versus calling on, that it's like, whether you're the person who's trying to like give feedback to somebody or you're the person that had somebody give feedback to them, it feels the same. It feels like you're under threat. And just figuring out how to how to navigate all of that stuff, knowing that you might, you know, feel craptastic when you're negotiating all of it. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, like knowing that we're, you know, it's not cut and dry. And I think we like easy answers. And the truth of the matter is none of this work is easy answer work. It is right. practice and it is going back to it again and it is messing it up. And then it is being like, all right, well, what's realignment? And it's all of that. And and again, that's part of be like being compassionate and patient with ourselves as we work through the process of learning, of returning to a way of guidance that is really, really, really far away from what we've been conditioned to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Are you ready for the G-Speed round? 
Um, yes, I'm all ready. Okay, so the only rule is you can't overthink it. What was your early tween heartthrob? Oh, New Kids on the Block, uh, Donnie Wahlberg. Okay, I was a Jordan, and I actually had the doll where he had the little braid. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, and I would just like rebraid it, be like, yeah, Jordan, we're connecting here. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. Um, okay, what is the silliest thing a person who's operating with big privilege has said to you? Where you're just like, oh my gosh, uh, there are too many to even, (laughs) Um, oh, I don't know if I can even think, because I try to dump those things. I don't retain them. When people say foolishness to me, I'm like, "Mm, that was cute. And then that's gone. (laughs) It cannot (laughs) take up any occupancy in rent free in my brain. So I'm not. Yes. (laughs) I love that. Okay. Um, What is a something that you previously coded as a failure that you later realized was a, a gift? Uh, oh, the ending of my last relationship. Mm. Yeah. 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 I, I, it was, yeah, there have been so many things that felt like, oh, what did I do? You know, or I messed this all up. And it's like, no, you're just learning. You're learning. And here's, here's your learning this, this, this iteration. And it'll be a new one another time. And all of it is in service of your highest good. Right. Yeah. I love that. I always um, come back to that for agreements of like nothing is personal and just, you know, like, yeah, because it's as a personalizer of all the things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Find helpful. Um, okay. Perfect. Fill in the blank. I feel most powerful when? I feel most powerful when I'm, I'm standing in the sun. Mm. Uh, yeah. I love that. Okay. When you are in the midst of your deep, deep dorkdom, <laughs> what would we find you alone in your room, wherever? What would we find you doing? I'm talking to myself and I am singing all the songs and doing the lyrics from the musical Once on This Island <laughs> or Into the Woods or Into the Woods. Oh, yes. I love I'm that. Totally- Cause you came out of the womb with jazz hands. You gotta, yep, yep. <laughs> okay, perfect. Second to last question is, what is a question that nobody asks you in all of your interviews and things that would be a good thing to ask? Mm, people don't ask me like who I am when I'm most afraid. Yeah. You know, people don't ask me about the 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 more fragile the fragile. I'm going to use the word fragile. <laughs> <laughs> The more vulnerable versions of Sonia. I don't. I mean, I can't promise. I'm really like, yes, I'll share, but but I know that people don't ask often. Well, I mean, this is a tea up for myself, question, just right? because. Yeah. Do I'm you like, have set up? <laughs> I mean, if you would hashtag no pressure, but <laughs> what is it? What is it like for you? Well, because part of the thing that I would assume is that with people like yourself where so much of the way that you show up is with this big energy, this big compassionate energy that it benefits people to not imagine you being that way. You know what I mean? You're their beacon. And then it's like, oh, wait. Yeah. I really personally feel like allowing ourselves to let our beacons be human, right? Like to be human is the greatest gift we can give to each other. That's where the compassion lives. Can I, can I really let you be human? And can I honor your humanness? You know, in my most human, I'm, I struggle with all the same things everybody else does. You know, I wonder if I'm not good enough. I wonder who am I to do this or 
you know, who am I, you know, who do I think I am or, you know, and, or, you know, when, when is all this going to collapse and they're going to like, you know, burn me at the stake or <laughs> right. pitchforks oh. come out and pitchforks come out, right. We've uh, identified you as an imposter and we are ready to take your platform, ready. your resources, but yeah, all of the yeah. things, yeah. 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 the royalties back, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so those are, that's when the outside voice is talking inside my head and you know, the like, am I lovable? You know, like, am I, am I, am I really lovable? I, I struggle with the same questions that we all struggle with. Right. The only difference is I wrote a book to try to find my way back and to help yeah. us, the rest of us find our way back. But yeah, it doesn't change well, the fact that I get lost. Yes. Thank you for sharing that because I do, I, I feel like there is something that's deeply resonant about seeing the folks that we are looking to, to also know their humanity. Like I just got asked the other day by somebody and not that I'm a big deal, but you know, like, how are you so amazingly productive? And, um, I was like, uh, so no, is the answer? (laughs) No, (laughs) not at all. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, I have like 10% of the time in which I'm extremely focused and productive. And then the rest of the time I'm just steeped and mired in, all of the chatter that I can kind of find my way out of sometimes and not. And so, you know, I'm like, no, this is, you're looking to me, you're looking for productivity hacks. No, this is right. not, the place I'm not, to your, not, not your girl. I'm not your girl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Last one. What does it mean to be a bold bitch? Mm, uh, it means to unapologetically, unapologetically pursue that which makes you come alive and to not allow any of the barriers imposed by the world to become the embar- the barriers that you impose on yourself to refuse them and go anyway. Yeah. Uh, I love that. You are fucking amazing. I'm so grateful for you in the world, for you sharing your time with us and just, yeah, I'm really, I'm really grateful for the the work that you're doing and the way that you're showing up and all the things. So how can people engage with you spend time with you, buy from you, like all the things. Folks can find me at my website, sonyarenetaylor.com. You can learn about my work and all the things. You can also buy books there if you don't want to buy them from an independent bookseller of color or a queer or LGBTQ bookstore. You can go there. Make Amazon your like last, 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 bottom, bottom, bottom of the barrel choice in terms of where you get the book, any of the books. Um, there are four. Well, there are three. There's the second edition of the Body's Not Apology. There's the workbook. And then there's my children's book about puberty, Celebrate Your Body. So you can do those on the website. You can follow me on Instagram for as long as I decide to stay on Instagram. I am platform agnostic. And if they get on my nerves enough, I will leave. But right now I'm on Instagram <laughs> at Sonia Renee Taylor. Um, you can follow me and support the things that I am doing economically by becoming a patron at Patreon, which is also Sonia Renee Taylor. And you can learn all about the work that the Body is Not an Apology does at thebodyisnotanapology.com and the Body is Not an Apology on Instagram and Facebook. Yay. Well, thank you so much. You are truly amazing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. Isn't she just literally the best? Like I am ready to pack up to New Zealand and just like show up on her doorstep and be like, adopt me, will you? Because you're awesome. And your awesomeness, I'm pretty sure is transmissible through osmosis. And I'm here for it. I'm down for it. Just living and loving every bit of it. And 
this episode, just for me, like what we, we just covered so much, but particularly this area about holding space to be both the oppressor and the oppressed, to have compassion and grace for yourself and also hold yourself accountable. Like just the reconciling and holding dualities is something that is such a meta meditation for my life because I am just in between. I'm in between races, grew up between religions, grew up between coasts, like coasts of the US that is. And there is just so much in my life where I was presented all of these false dichotomies. And I think really, I keep coming back to this idea of nuance in really seeing that there is a place for yes and, that we can really get out of these polar opposites, zero sum kind of vibes and just really say, yeah, it's probably everything. And how do we navigate through it? And I just am so grateful for her, uh, but a lot of people like her who are really just showing up in this way, really offering something magical and amazing. So if you got benefit from this episode, what I would love to do is for us to collectively show her support. She has a Patreon and you can just click the link in the show notes and sign up for that. Not only will you get exclusive content, but also you will really be creating the type of reciprocity that is so deep and valuable and meaningful in helping just demonstrate that you appreciate who she is and how she's showing up in the world. And also, you know, there's that like the goodness that you get when you give, those amazing feelings of knowing that you're a generous human who's really literally putting value in the work that you're doing and in those amazing humans who are doing the work. I love you. I love your general boldness and badassery and your vulnerability and literally all the things. And I will see you next week. Bye. If you love this episode and the show, be sure to rate and review on iTunes and share it out in the world with a friend, family, frenemy, whatever feels good. You can follow us on Instagram at the bold bitch podcast. And we're waiting for you at the bold slash mafia. See you next week.